Welcome to the Explorer Poet Podcast, an exploration of the blurry line separating our physical world from our abstract realities. You talk about something called a soul's high adventure. Man is born with a certain functioning. A kind of house of meaning that we dwell in. A clandestine land found underneath your floorboards. These represent a common human inheritance. A common vocabulary of rituals and symbols. Let's let you know where you are. Such and such a hero has done so and so, and that is your what am I going to do, quit? That's not an option. you got to keep on keeping on. Life's a garden, dig it. You make it work for you. You never give up. Follow your bliss. I mean, find where it is and don't be afraid to, to follow it. Conversations and stories, myths and reality, science and the gods we worship, the esoteric and the everyday. Come explore with me. Welcome to the Explorer Poet Podcast. My guest today is an incredibly hard worker with a giant heart. Her name is Tanya Toole, and she's the founder and executive director of Holding Out Help. Tanya is incredibly giving, dedicated, and personable. For over 14 years, Tanya and her husband have been serving individuals who have escaped from religiously polygamous backgrounds. My conversation with Tanya was incredibly intimate, and I found her to be both understanding of other circumstances and genuinely empathetic to their needs. Tanya is a fantastic leader, and I thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. I hope you enjoy it as well. Okay. Hi, Tanya. Hi, how are you, Josh? I'm doing really well. Thanks Thanks again for being willing to do this with me. Um, I think I've been actually looking forward to this for quite a while. You were on my list, or your organization was on my list a little bit longer, maybe a few weeks before I reached out to you. So I've actually been really excited to um, chat with you. That's awesome. It's seriously my pleasure. Anytime you can get the word out about an organization, the better. So yeah, absolutely. You well, are yeah. so you are you're the executive director of Holding Out Help. Yep, I am the founder and executive director. So it was my husband and I who actually started this almost fourteen plus years ago. Oh wow. Okay, that was actually my next question was about the founding, and um, I'd love to get into that. But I'm I almost think that it makes sense to give a little bit of background before we talk about the founding, um, because obviously something was going on that you saw and you thought, oh, we should do something to help. And um, just reading just reading from your website, I've kind of summarized uh, from your about section, holding out help is focused on providing housing, food, clothing, counseling, education, and other services, aiding people from a polygamous background to reach self-sufficiency. Yeah. There's a lot in there, <laughs> but I want to ask you, <laughs> yeah, I want to ask you just right off the bat, like, what is, what do you, what is a polygamous community and why are there people coming from these communities that need your help? Yeah, I love your question, Josh. And I think we, I think I want to start more of letting your listeners understand that there are groups that are closed and isolated. And then there's what we refer to as independents. And they're more, they go to the same schools our kids go to, have the same jobs. Um, they're more integrated into mainstream society. But a majority of people from polygamy are enclosed, isolated communities. And so um, a polygamous community would be somebody who has a prophet or a leader. And then they have all their followers, usually thousands of followers underneath them. And they all work in kind of in a communal society, so to speak, where decisions are made by their leaders. 
um, of what to watch, where, eat, read, who they can associate with, even down to whom they can marry. Um, uh, they call it often Zion, a uh, type of consecrated community where only the purest, the, pure, the purest of the pure actually live. Um, and they support one another. Um, they, it, it's most of the people in these communities are pretty sincere, I guess, and, and devout followers. I mean, their whole goal is to reach what they refer to as the celestial kingdom, to be in the presence of God um, is the ultimate goal. And so they're very devout, sincere people. Yeah, that I mean, so a lot of what you say there, uh, devout, sincere, having this idea of a kingdom that they want to reach, a lot of that resonates with me from my background. Um, just to fill in a little bit more, so you're located in Utah. Located in Utah, and that's where a majority of the polygamists live because it stemmed from, obviously, the Church of Christ, uh, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints uh, back in the 1800s. Right, yeah. So my family... Uh, if I go back to my family genealogy, my family came from England and Denmark in the 1800s as as part of the migration of of faithful Latter Day Saints, as they call them, and they they landed in America, loaded up push carts or pull carts, I guess is what they should be called, and they pulled them they pulled whatever possessions they had. Uh, which didn't include oxen or horses or anything like that. So they just pulled their possessions in these carts across the plains. And it was, I want to say like the 1850s or 60s. They completely avoided like all the American history, the revolution, the Civil War, and they just came straight to Utah. And um, so part of like what you're saying, it, it just resonates with me. You know, I was raised in an LDS family, I was raised to care very deeply about the celestial kingdom and being worthy to go there. Um, so, so today's, today's going to be interesting because you're going to see all these parallels. Huh, as I talk about. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I've done a lot of like, I've done a lot of reading and um, uh, I'm sure you're familiar with Lindsay Hanson Park and her, yeah, her podcast that she did. I, I listened to that entire thing. And that was really the strange thing about it for me was was growing up in a family that in our past we had participated in polygamy. Mm -hmm. And then only once I was an adult and I looked for information outside of my own circle did I find that that was the truth and that we had <laughs> we had been part of that history. But what is it what is it about polygamy that um I mean where does this stem from and where does why does it persist? Yeah, so that's a really good question, Josh. And you probably already know the answer then if you have the history. I, I do, yes. <laughs> yeah, it started with Joseph Smith back in, I want to say, 1843. And then, um, and they do, they believe, I, I want to say it's three wives in order to reach the celestial kingdom. And then uh, there's a lot of pressure for Utah to become state. And so the uh, government wanted them to denounce polygamy. And so in 1890, roughly, there was a manifesto where the church, it's interesting on the wording of this, because you have to look it up because I don't have the exact wording, but um, essentially what they said is they promised not to practice future plural marriages. And so it still exists to this day in the Doctrine, Doctrine and Covenants section 132, where they talk about living plural marriage as an everlasting covenant, thus saith the Lord. And I think this is really important for your listeners to get because people think that those that come from this culture are completely crazy and they're actually not. 
they're living off of the foundation, the original doctrines of Joseph Smith. And so they believe God doesn't change. They believe it was an everlasting covenant and they knew it came from God because it was thus saith the Lord. And so um, essentially they, they are still practicing it to this day in order to reach the presence of God. And it's still in the doctrine and covenants um, at the same time. And so, yeah, it's kind of a, a mixed bag on, you know, people that follow it or don't follow it because some people believe the manifesto, you know, was set in stone and that they shouldn't practice it anymore and that it came from God. But the ones who are practicing are like, no, it didn't come from God. It was just a manifesto. And so there's a, yeah, a lot of turmoil between the two groups, I would say. Yeah, absolutely. If, if I, so is that the way you understand it is the question, yeah. Josh. Now you fill me in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was gonna I was gonna try to do a little bit of that because um there's uh I, I don't want to assume that any of my listeners are part of this any of these communities. And so there's a lot of language that we use that's kind of difficult. And so it, if you look at mainstream Christianity in America, there's the book that they they follow is the Bible, the combination of the Old Testament and the New Testament. And that's scripture for most Christians. But you mentioned Joseph Smith, who was around in the early 1800s in upstate New York. And his story goes that he found a third set of scriptures, which is which became the Book of Mormon. That Book of Mormon. The golden plates? Yes, he found the golden plates, translated them, translated them through the power of God to become the Book of Mormon. And um, but then you mentioned something called the Doctrine and Covenants. And and what that is is simply as Joseph Smith was setting up his religion and, or his church, and as he was trying to move the, his view of the kingdom of God forward, there were all these questions that arose and all these needs that arose as far as organization and what people were doing and why. And so he would give out revelations to people. He would give out revelations to the, to the community or to an individual, and he would say, okay, this is what God wants. This is what God needs for you right now. And the... At, at some point, the church started collecting all of these revelations, and that became what's known as the Doctrine and Covenants, which is, an, which is, again, a new set of scriptures or an additional set of scriptures that's codified in the Mormon religion. Yeah. And, and, and the way I understand it, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, they said the Bible wasn't correctly translated, and so he came to translate that, and we should be looking more at the Book of Mormon than we do the Bible. Is that correct? Yeah, it's it's a I, in religion it's one of those things that goes back it's like a pendulum that swings back and forth. And so sometimes the Book of Mormon is the but you're right the the Bible has been translated from other languages from from ancient Hebrew and Greek and and through Latin into German and English and so there's all these different translations and so the Book of Mormon in the view of of true believing Mormons the Book of Mormon is a book that was given directly to the prophet, and he translated it from some ancient script, but he translated it through the power of God, not just as some monk or some expert right. sitting in a in a castle somewhere. Right. And so because he translated it through the power of God, the belief is that it's it's the perfect word of God or the complete word of God without any mistranslation. You said that much better than I did. So. <laughs> um, and then... Oh, that's not my history. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I mean, um, uh, then the other thing was you mentioned that there's this one revelation in the Doctrine and Covenants, and it specifically spells out the need for plural marriage or polygamy 
in the Mormon community. And the, going way back, even then, it was a controversial topic, and um, it was difficult for Joseph Smith to implement. But at some point, he did implement it, and he ended up with a number of wives. I think the number is somewhere in the 30s or, f- or maybe even 50s. And his successor, Brigham Young, was definitely in the 50s or maybe even 60s as far as the number of wives that they had. Yeah. And then... Oh, go ahead. I've been meeting people recently who are saying that um, Brigham's the one who took this off into the deep end, but Joseph Smith was pure and right. And I was like, I've never heard that before. It's so strange how different stories happen. And I said, where'd you get that from? They said, well, my husband's been doing a lot of studying. It sounds like Joseph Smith is the true prophet, but Brigham gave it all a bad name when he started practicing polygamy. So who knows? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I have a lot of opinions about the two men and their different approaches and styles. I don't know if this is the forum to discuss that, but um, but that sounds to me like a, an apologist way of reconciling the situation in their own mind. Yeah. Um, an apologist being somebody who they, they'll, they'll sit and think and come up with their own answers for why things are the way they are. And, right. and they'll, they'll um, oftentimes if you sit in, a, in an LDS Sunday school, lesson, you'll hear one set of answers. But if you go onto an online forum with a bunch of other people arguing it, you'll see all these strange ways of conceptualizing it so that people can kind of just sit with their beliefs. Yeah, absolutely. I uh, agree with that. <laughs> but um, okay, but then this revelation came along that said, okay, you have to practice plural marriage. And and then at some point, Joseph Smith, he he passed away. He was actually uh, killed in a in a prison, and um and then Brigham Young was the second prophet or leader of the church who took the members that were there and they headed west because at that point the western United still Western United States was still unclaimed, and um so Brigham Young took them out to Utah and established the church in Salt Lake City and started to spread from there. But you mentioned uh, also that it was the United States government that was actually the group cracking down on this idea of polygamy. And the way that I've heard it described, again, going back to Lindsay Hansen Park's podcast, is that when Abraham Lincoln took office, he wanted to rid the United States of the last two vestiges of barbarism, which was slavery and polygamy. So, and so for the, for the state of Utah to eventually be admitted into the union they needed to be willing to give up polygamy yeah that's exactly that's exactly right and Lindsay Hanson Park is brilliant with history um I don't think there's anything that she doesn't know and uh, I think you worry that much better than I ever could so <laughs> I deal with today's polygamy not the former yeah part. yeah we'll catch we'll, we'll get I'll, I'll fill in what I can until we catch up to you no that's great I love it Josh but there was at that point there was a the the manifesto that came out and said okay we'll be done so that we can get our statehood but then obviously these people deeply believed it they believed that if i don't do this then i won't go to heaven that i won't and a, and a big tenet of mormon faith is that if you make it to the celestial kingdom you get to be with your family forever yep. and if you don't make it then you're separated from your family yep and so it was very scary for these people to I mean, you also have to you have to put yourself in their shoes, because in a, in a non judgmental way, because these are simple people who many of them were born in Utah, and 
Yeah, and they had no they had no idea what the outside world was. And so from the very beginning of their lives they were fed a story. And that story was their existence. It became very important to them. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, um I did a law enforcement conference last week and one of the, I had a panelist of four ladies that were speaking. And one of the ladies said, you know, the, we would be separated if we didn't follow it, but that um, they could also be deemed unworthy anytime throughout their life and be separated. But that the father at any time when he was in the celestial kingdom, could essentially reach down, pluck her out and say, I choose to save you. And it's the first time I'd heard that. Have you heard that in the past? I've never, I've never heard that one. No, I've never heard that. I've heard, I've, I've heard, like, I've heard very strict doctrine about if you're not righteous, you know, God's judgment is just and you will be cast out. But then again, sitting in a Sunday school, you hear people say things like, well, you know, God will sort it all out. And what they're trying to say is, is that you won't be cast out. Like if, for example, if a mother and a father are righteous enough, I've heard that uh, not not that the father can reach down and pull the child up or whatever it is, but just that if a mother and father are righteous enough, if they're committed enough to their temple covenant, that the children, the offspring that they've created in that temple covenant, will also make it. And that's that's something I did, that's something I I grew up my entire life in the church, and that's not that's something I never heard until my thirties. And so the story, yeah, the story must change just just a little bit from here to there to help people, you know, sit, sit in their belief and be comfortable with it. It makes me sad though, thinking of like, when is enough is enough, right? Like, when do you know, when are you certain and solid that you're actually going to be in the celestial kingdom? So it's almost like the the carrots dangled, but you're, you keep reaching for it and reaching for it and reaching for it, but you never know if you've made it or not. Yeah. And to be honest, that's more of a modern LDS problem because there was a time when in the temple, now Mormons, the, the LDS church, they have, they have uh, their church buildings where they meet every Sunday, but they also have their temples. And it's in the temple that they do all these covenants and, you know, with God, they make promises with God. And then they go out into the world to live those promises. But there was a time in LDS history when this thing called having, your, <laughs> they, they said, having your calling and election made sure. And what that is, is essentially a, it was a type of ritual in the temple where, where you could get that very thing that you're talking about, where the prophet could bestow upon you and say, it doesn't matter what you do from here on out. You've been righteous enough. You've been good enough up to this point. And so you're going to make it. And that's something that a lot of, a lot of people did in the past. And there's still talk about how it happens sometimes today. But what you're saying is absolutely right. Is is when you're a when you're a member of the church, particularly if you're in one of these more fundamental groups, uh, fundamentalist groups, you are all you always have that thought in the back of my at the back of your mind is like, am I doing enough? Am I good enough? Am I worthy enough? Yeah, and that's what I think. That's what breaks my heart, especially in some of these communities. But. Wasn't it? Uh, there's a podcast I listened to recently with John Delin, who's good friends with Lindsay Hanson Park, and um, and they had a couple on there where the father, I think, had. Um, I'm not saying this is all LDS people. Please don't misunderstand me here. But that her father was abusing her, but he said it was okay because he had already been allowed 
it was a sure thing that he was reaching the celestial kingdom. So now he could do whatever he wanted. Okay. And is, is that part of that teaching, I guess, is my question. There's, to be honest, there's not a lot of teaching about it. You can't really find much about it in, like, for example, in the Doctrine and Covenants. So there's not really a lot of teaching. There's stories and there's hearsay more than anything. But I can't imagine that it's it's a license to do whatever you want. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure it's yeah, been that, used that way, but I, I can't imagine that that's how it's phrased. Well, and that's that would be my thought is, again, it's that one or two people that go rogue and take it to the next <laughs> extent. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Use it for your own personal benefit, so to speak. and. But that's what her father used to say, the, the girl that I was watching get interviewed. And I thought, oh, I hope that's not a teaching. Like, that's so sad. <laughs> yeah. I said, Would you please? I've never heard anything that, that, that spoke in that manner. I mean, everything just sounds like if you, if you listen to LDS General Conference, if you actually read the Book of Mormon, um, a lot of it is just about love and kindness, being like Jesus, being, yeah. being helpful, being friendly. And so, uh, it, yeah, it strikes me as, as odd that somebody would just blatantly say, I, I've had my, you know, I've, I've made it, I've arrived, and so now I'm allowed to do whatever I want. It's okay. Interesting. <laughs> Interesting to say the least. Yeah. Um, I'm really tempted to just talk about being Mormon right now, but let's get back to... Uh, because Sorry, I could, I, can't I could talk about that, that conversation with you. I have <laughs> friends who are, but that's all I got for you. No, yeah, my, I mean, my entire life. Just so you know a little bit more back my, about my background. My entire life, I was raised LDS, and um, the way the reason that I say it's, it was a little more fundamentalist than than most most LDS people today is that if you go to Utah, if you go to California, if you go almost anywhere in the United States, almost anywhere in the world, you can find. LDS church members. You know, I, I lived in Korea for two years doing an LDS mission. And there there are people there and they speak a different language and they eat different food, but they are just like the church members here. They behave very similarly very similarly. And um but the way that I was raised was just a little bit different because all these people that I'm talking about, they're at some level they're they're integrated into society. Like really, in it, like the kids go to regular school, the dads have jobs, the moms might have jobs. You know, it just seems like a normal family, except for maybe Sundays and Monday nights or something. <laughs> but yeah. um, but the way that I was raised was my parents took us uh to a a house in California, and it was just a place that they rented, but it was out in the country. We I grew up in a grape vineyard in Northern California. And my mother homeschooled us there. And so we were, we were just completely isolated from, as children, we were just completely isolated from the world and from our peers. Yeah. And so. Similar to polygamy, especially with one of the groups, because they, when, I mean, they send people out into the middle of nowhere and they do the teachings, most of their teachings or their schooling is religious yeah. schooling and then they don't allow them to usually go past the sixth eighth grade yeah and it's almost like a form of control to keep them within their specific group and they and were you taught that the outside world was evil or no it's it's hard to say yes and no because at some level we were integrated we had a television 
just b- basic TV, sure. but there were shows that we weren't allowed to watch because it was too, you know, inappropriate or something. Um, but my, as far as my schooling, we didn't use a Mormon curriculum, but we used a Christian curriculum. And then part of the, part of my daily routine was I had to read from the Book of Mormon even as a kid. And, and my family read scriptures every day together. We prayed constantly together. We went to church every Sunday. My parents attended the temple regularly and all while not (laughs) interacting with. So part of it was that we had a community, but they were all LDS. They were all members of the church. And so I didn't have any real influence from the outside world until you were saying that they, they teach the kids until about sixth, seventh, eighth grade. It was in eighth grade that my parents, I think, honestly, I think it was just a function of surpassing what my mother was comfortable homeschooling us with as far as math and science and, and English or whatever. And so it wasn't until eighth grade that I went to school. And, oh, man, it was... You were public school? We went to a public school, yeah. And it was, it was um, quite an experience being being thrown into public school looking at the time it was just like okay this is what we're doing but now looking back i just once i learned that humans operate on a a psychology that develops over time and you realize what early childhood development requires for somebody to build an identity and enter with into you know an engaged process with their peers it just yeah, it took it took a lot out of me when I left the church and started realizing a lot of things. Well, probably socially that had to be horrific for you because that's I mean, our kids who come from that closed environment and then we go and try to place them in a public school. I mean, they can't even function, yeah. let alone they don't know how to make decisions, right? So they're like, You're asking me, you know, questions in the class. I don't even know the basic history that you guys no, like I used to have to like literally ask teachers like, hey, could you take this child in the morning and before you teach in the class today, explain a little bit of the history so they're not so lost. And we ended up finding that our, our best bet was to have like a really smaller like private school environment in order to put these kids in. So socially, yeah. the other kids would understand where they came from. They, you know, lean in a little bit more socially with them and with, you know, athletics and stuff and ease them in. A little bit better and just have a little more grace and understanding about where they can come from and one of the schools that we used to do here they would have me come every so often and speak and teach the school about polygamy in general because i'm like you got them in your school now and this is what you need to be aware of and when they do this that's what this means and you know, we just really had to do a lot of cultural sensitivity training so they really understood who was in there who was in the school district so yeah yeah that's i mean it's very relatable i would say the curriculum it, we i did just fine with curriculum um, because because we had been using books that weren't necessarily LDS books, but it was for me it was the social aspect. I had no idea how to interact with people, and I would just watch. I would just observe the other students and just how casual they were and how comfortable they were, and I just could not figure it out. Yeah, it's the same thing. It takes our, our clients years to figure that out. And sometimes they don't ever, I it's. I mean, we've been in business for about 14 years now. And I remember somebody recently coming to me, several actually had recently come and said, it takes me us about 10 years, they would say, for them to feel like they belong in the world. Yeah. And are comfortable in the world. And I'm like, 10 years? It took you, I thought you were doing great. And they're like, yeah, but we always felt a little on the outside. Never felt normal. 
Yeah. So. Yeah. I think that what happens with me, even now you can see like I, I tend, I seem to have like a relaxed persona where I can interact. I think a lot of that has come through practice, but a lot of it in the beginning was creating that persona intentionally so that I had something to present to people that was not off-putting. I was just this quiet, relaxed guy. And I just never, I just sat at my desk and didn't say anything. But if, if, you know, as time went on, when kids would try to engage with me, you know, I did sports and things like that, that made it easier. But you would always just get this look, you would always catch this look that's like, what's up with you? Like, what, what, you know, what's the deal? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, um, you could go speak with me. You could go do these law enforcement conferences with me. <laughs> that, hey, that sounds like fun. I, I do, I do really well one on one, or I do really well when I'm on a stage with a microphone. But if you put me in a in a room of people, I'll just like go hide in the corner. But if if you you know, it's just how it turned out. I don't know. How many siblings do you have? We had. Um, there were seven kids in our. Fa- there are seven kids in our family, and oh. and. Um, about why do you think, sorry to interrupt you. Why oh, do you think ahead. your mom wanted you or your mom and dad had you out in the middle of nowhere essentially? You're out in a rural area. Oh, it's um first of all, my mom, she grew up on a on a ranch in Colorado. And so she felt very comfortable comfortable being out in an isolated place, you know, with a small group of people. Yeah. But I think deeper than that, I think that that my mother had a sincere fear that we would be influenced by the world and she wanted to just isolate us from that she wanted to protect us from it yeah, yeah. which is a lovely thing a mom would do right if she's really i mean you don't realize the ramifications long term but she was trying, yeah. trying to do the best she could with the information that she had at that time yeah absolutely she she was young they were my parents weren't that old i mean my my parents had seven kids before they were i think 28 years old 30 years old. Yeah. So they were super young. They, they were very poor. Um, we, we, I just think that my mom just, she really believes, you know, you were talking about earlier, like these people are sincere. They really believe that they're going to the celestial kingdom. And I think my mom's entire goal in life was to make sure that her and her kids were in the celestial kingdom together. Yeah. (laughs) that one just saying josh yeah yeah so um okay going way back in the conversation this manifesto comes out and some people in the church say okay we'll stop doing this but there are other groups who decide we're not going to give this up because we follow god's words and not man's words correct god's law is above man's law that's right my favorite statements so where did Maybe just catch us up from that point till today. Like, where did these groups hide out, or where did they go to avoid the law? And what groups? You're going to ask me a lot of history again. <laughs> I don't know a lot of history. Okay, okay. I just served with the people today. But but I will say this is, I mean, you all started from the, the same place, right? All the people yeah. started from the same place, and then they have, and we say division, right? They they're button heads. I should be in charge, or. God spoke to me. And so they have all these offshoots. And now we've got, I mean, four main ones and then lots of, lots of little offshoots all over the United States. Yeah. That maybe that's, that's a better question to answer is like, what's the current situation and, and what do the groups look like or where did they, where are they located? 
Yeah, so um, I, the FLDS is the one that everybody knows about, right? That's the Warren Jeffs who's in prison for life plus 20 years. And they originally were in uh, Colorado City, Arizona, Hilldale, Utah. Um, they were in uh, Texas. Right. Um, Pringle, South Dakota. Uh, that that compound just got confiscated. I don't know if you know that, but no, that's I called the one in Texas. What was that? I was just saying I hadn't heard about it. Yeah, and then that one in Texas obviously was taken over um, by the state. And so now they're kind of scattered all through the United States of America. There's a, a big offshoot of the top echelon of FLDS probably in Cedar City, Utah. Um, and then the, the men essentially go, and they have women too, but they go into crew homes all over the U.S. based on where the work exists. They're in construction mostly. And then they have women group homes that will follow the men around and cook and clean for them. Um, then you have the Kingston polygamous group, which is Idaho, um, uh, kind of the Farmington, Bountiful, North Salt Lake, all the way up through uh, Draper area and beyond. But most people don't even know that they're polygamous because they dress like you and I. Right. And they might show themselves as a neighbor, like a female that has a ton of kids. And the only, the only sign you'll have is that they won't let their kids play with your kids. And the mother won't really communicate with you very much. They kind of keep isolated because the, um, the social structure, all social events, all religious events are all within their own church body. Kind of like probably what you grew up in the LDS church, right? Like everything's done within your church community. Yeah. And the husbands will come in and out at night. So nobody knows. They just think they're single mamas. And so then you have the all red group, also known as the Apostolic United Brethren. They're in Pinesdale, Montana is a big group. And then there's a large group here in Santa Quinn, Utah, up through Bluffdale. Bluffdale is where their main meeting house is. And then you have militia groups. I don't know if you know about militia groups, but. I know the term, but yeah, tell me. Canada, Mexico, and here in uh, the Utah area, where their predominant organization does sex trafficking, drug trafficking, and weapons trafficking. And so um, it's it's crazy. And I just heard about them about three years ago. So they exist, they're here, um, but they're probably a lot smaller than the main groups. So Okay. So you said that this last group, the militia group, is that what it's called or is that just what people are calling it? There's lots of different groups. Um, I've heard of the word three percenters. I've heard of the uh, terminology mom, um, uh, the militia of Montana, which is where it originated. It was in Montana. Sorry, stuff on my teeth. Um, and then, um, but they're, they're in Canada. I've heard they're... Um, I want to say Mexico, and then they occasionally have come up through Utah um, and collaborated what it sounds like with other leaders. Interesting. I don't know if that's true, but we've had several people come out that say that's what's happening. So I don't know. Interesting. So they have an LDS background in some way, but then they're trafficking in all these illegal activities, yeah, and including well, I people. Say, I wouldn't say LDS. Well, I mean, obviously the roots come from LDS originally, but no, they're, they're considered polygamous. So interesting. Not yeah, not LDS. Just polygamous. Just polygamous. Okay. Very interesting. But you didn't know about that one, did you, Josh? No, you're you're teaching me something new, which is fun. <laughs> yeah, the reason it's fun. So well, those are the then you have the LeBarons too, the LeBarons, Mexico, and here in the Utah area as well. So and then lots of just offshoots everywhere. 
Yeah, I know that as far as the in, as far as the entertainment value of stories, the LeBarons have some of the the higher, I guess, more potent stories around violence and even like internal feuding and people being murdered in the deserts. Yeah. yeah. Under the banner of heaven. I think that's recently coming out. So, which is crazy. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's funny because um, back 14, probably 13 years ago, we had our first LeBaron and one of the gals that was helping got shot at and she has no idea if it was because of that or not, but we have like probably five or six clients now. Never, no problems whatsoever. Okay, interesting. Yeah, I think that the all the that was a little farther back with the there was two brothers or three brothers or something. Celebrity brothers. Yeah. So yeah. what is it? So obviously these militia groups sound pretty dangerous, but just the the is it Kingston? Is that what you said? Kingston, also known as the Davis County Co-op. Yeah, the Kingston group, and then the FLDS and these groups. What is it? Maybe you could just help help explain what it is that people are trying to escape from what's going yeah what's going on there that they're trying to escape from besides just they're they're having multiple moms yeah it's usually not necessarily the multiple moms piece that they run from it's the abuse yeah Um, and i would say most of the abuse and lack of education we get a lot of people that are just frustrated that they're not allowed to go that one step further per se in school um, but a lot of it's abuse. It's physical, sexual, um, religious. Um, they're tired of the religion at the end of the day. Interesting. So when somebody comes to you and and they say, you know, in my community, I can't progress ed- with my education and I want to do more. I see that there's more to do out there. Yeah. Are there people coming to you that are still believers? When All they, the time. When they arrive, they still believe yeah. in the tenets of the religion. They're just looking for an opportunity. Yeah, that's very well said. Um, I don't think most people know what they believe when they first come out, Josh. And so um, super important for an agency like ours just to kind of remain neutral and just provide a safe place for rehabilitation, resources, while they figure out what their journey looks like. Um, And um, I, I don't know the best way to say it other than that they're completely lost. They have no idea who they are. They have no idea where they're headed. Yeah. They're terrified of the world. So <laughs> yeah, best way to explain it. Yeah, I could, I can relate to that in some way as well. As I mentioned before, I, it wasn't until my thirties until I even questioned my faith. Mm. Um, and the most question your faith though, like give me your little bit of yeah. why the why behind it. <laughs> When I say question my faith, I think I think what I meant was actually actually took the step to look for answers to questions that I had had because I think I think that a lot and you've probably heard this a lot if if you uh, if you know John DeLynn and, and a lot of these Mormon podcast hosts there's this idea of a shelf and as you go through your life questions pop up that you don't have immediate answers for or the answers are too scary to accept. Because it it means that something else is amiss, and so you just take these ideas and you put them on a shelf. Yeah, absolutely. Or and, in a drawer. Or in a drawer, and over time it gets too full, or the shelf gets too heavy and it falls, and then you yeah. you're kind of like, okay, there's too much. And so what I would say is, um, maybe I'm going to get personal here, but for me, the way that I was raised, 
there was an extreme lack of emotional intelligence in my household. Mm. And so for my whole life, I was I was taught that anytime something felt good, that was because God was happy with me. That was the spirit. And anytime something felt bad, that was like a warning that I was doing something. Wow. Go ahead. That's, I was going to say it's very similar because you sit here and you're giving all these faith tenets about love and kindness and servanthood, right? All these things that you're supposed to do. And then you're seeing the division in your homes. I mean, I don't care how people spin it. Having three wives is not easy. Yeah. Uh, three moms is not easy. And you're watching the husband who might be harming the wife or the children. And you're like, that's not line. That's not line. And so what am I supposed to do with that day? Yeah. And so <laughs> at the same time, you're, you're told that this faith, this religion, this process of doing what you're supposed to be doing, it's, it's supposed to bring you joy and happiness. Right. And I would say over time, I just realized that I was, not only was I not happy, but I was this emotional void. I had nothing. And um, So sad. Yeah, yeah. And, and so I just, I had this emotional dissonance with what I was experiencing. And then yeah. in my early 30s, um, I just started looking outside the church for answers. There's this internal dialogue when you're a member of a group like this, uh, a religion or, or even for me, even just being part of the religion, not being part of a polygamous group, there's this internal dialogue that is you go to the source for the answers. You don't go outside the source. Absolutely. Because anything outside the source is going to be contrary or contradictory it's going to try to mislead you mis and right. misinform you and right. the, the term that they use for it in the mormon community is anti-mormon literature absolutely mormon bashing yeah mormon bashing yeah absolutely. and and so it wasn't until my 30s that i was willing to look outside that source and what i realized was oh this isn't anti-mormon this isn't mormon bashing these are historical events with with primary source documents. These are court cases. These are yeah. letters written in the hands of the people who actually wrote, like sent them. And these are, you know, things that were printed in the newspaper. Like nobody yeah. is nobody is making anything up because there's a source for everything. Yeah. Did your siblings end up leading too, or are they still kind of part of it? It's about uh I don't, I don't know exactly where everybody stands, but there are three of us who are certainly outside of the church and the other four. I'm, so did I'm kind you, of um, okay. So did you end up losing like your family unit? Like a lot of the people who leave polygamy do or no. And maybe we should explain that to your followers. Like at the end <laughs> of the day. Yeah. We, yeah. I would say the really hard thing for me was the faith because the Mormon doctrine is very inclusive. Like it goes, it goes from the very beginning all the way up to the United States, and the United States is a part of the story. And so, I was raised to be very patriotic, and to believe that this was God's country, and and all these things. To walk away from a self-sustaining society, yeah, and you go out into a competitive environment. You can't function, first of all, in a competitive environment, but you usually you lose the core. They may say they're there, but they're really not there. They don't include you in things. They don't, you know, most of the time with people from these closed 
cultures, they lose their family, their friends, their social structure, often their faith. They're yeah. kind of free falling into the abyss of, I don't know where I'm at. So when I left my religion, it was like the architecture of my understanding for reality just collapsed. Oh gosh, can you imagine? And yeah, so I really had to start from the beginning of just trying to understand how the world worked. And how many years did it take you to kind of figure this all out? Oh man, I've been in, I'm still figuring it out. I would say I haven't figured it all out, but I'm still getting there. But um, this was about, it's been about five years. So it's been like warp speed for me. Yeah. And um, as far as relationships with my family, like I was saying before, this may not be the case for every Mormon home. I I don't want to state this, but for me and my family, there there was never strong attachments between me and my siblings and me and my parents. And I think that some of them might think differently, particularly the ones who are still members. Yeah. They have a different story in their head that our family is special and we're, we're going to go to the celestial kingdom together. But for me, I just, part of that emotional dissonance was also with my family. And when I left the church, nothing changed. Like nobody reached out, nobody asked me about it. I was still invited to all the family activities and things. Nothing really changed. But what I've noticed is um, <laughs> there's a there's a very big there's like there's a similarity between people who have difficult circumstances in their lives, and and there's a you know if you if you know somebody who's been on drugs and had to go to a legit rehab and really like they hit rock bottom and they've had to rebuild their life and now they're a happy balanced person, those people they are honest people, they will open up about anything and they'll talk about anything. And if you bring up a subject, they don't flinch. It doesn't scare them. Yep. But s- the same thing happens with religion. When you, religion is a story and humans think in stories. And so when your story is so tied into the bigger picture. Yeah. For example, when I left the church, nobody could talk to me about it. because. That's like opening a door for your own story to collapse. And so it's not that everybody abandoned me or, you know, cast me off or ignored me or didn't invite me. It was more that I realized that there's a reason why we've never connected. And that's because the faith that we had didn't allow us to be honest about our feelings. It didn't, it didn't allow us to be honest about the situation. And so there are people still living in that situation who I just can't communicate with. Because if I say something, they don't even know how to respond or they give me a rote response. And it's just, uh, yeah, it's just like that. It's just not worth the effort. I'm not to see in that whatsoever. And again, this is so the same way as people from polygamy because a lot of them, when, when the children are born in your home, first off, they know that that child is God's child. It's the church's child. So you're not supposed to establish that really close nurturing bond because if they say that child needs to be moved over here to this family or this child needs to go out on that work crew, you have to let them go and you believe that that's part of God's plan. Right. And then you think, hmm, well, I don't really connect necessarily with my husband super well. My husband's jumping between homes. Um, emotionally, they, they just don't have anybody. So they're not honest with themselves about their feelings. 
they're not honest with other people and you can't be honest with other people because if people think that you're doubting or questioning, they can turn you in. And guess what? You're going to be sent out of darkness or hell. Right. So probably a lot of similarities there, which is crazy. It's a sticky situation. Um, Say the least. <laughs> but what it is, what it is also is, I mean, we use the word honesty. Yeah. But part of, part of this process has one of the things this process has taught me is that there are two types of people you can't trust. One of the, the clear per like the number one person you can't trust is somebody who's willing to lie to you intentionally. And then the second type of person you can't trust is somebody who doesn't know they're lying to you. Yeah. And that's even, that's even more difficult because you can't, you can't even convince them that they're lying to you. Yeah. And that's half of, that's a majority of our clients. They come out and they've learned to manipulate and lie in order to survive. That's right. And now it's for us to teach them and train them that that is no longer necessary out here in this world. Yeah. You can be who you are. You don't have to lie to get what you want. We're going to love you regardless. We're not going to leave you, not going to abandon you. And uh, we're going to be here standing at the end of the day. So yeah, that's yeah crazy. Well said. Yeah. With all the similarities though, it's interesting because I mean, the similarities between my upbringing and some of the people that you work with, there is some really big differences. You know, I, I started school in eighth grade. I did fine. I did. I played sports. I made friends. Yeah. I went to college. I, I got a degree. You know, I did a lot of these things that just integrated me into the bigger society, regardless of the, the religion that I was holding on to. Right. But the people coming from these this world, these people that you're helping, they're a lot of them are already grown and they've never experienced any of that. No. And I think that's, we love when we get the minor children and people like you take minor children. Yes, we work with minor children. And the reason we like that is because we can give them that full experience, even if it's not the experience that you've had from you know the moment that you're born. If I can get them into high school, even for a couple of years, Oh my gosh, they're on the fast track to learn how to socialize. Yeah. Um, their education, I mean, they move very quickly when they've got the right support system in place. And so they have a lot of other opportunities that people that come out as adults do not have. And the adults have a, I think their number one problem is they don't relate to anybody socially. Yes. They don't have a core group to walk through life with. And so how can we find something for them, someone to connect with? And so it's sad. Yeah, that's really hard. I mean, because you grow up in this world being told that you're a child of God. Yeah. And there's some implicit implicit assumptions that come with that. And one of them, especially from an LDS perspective, is that these children that you're working with, in the view of the people who raised them, in the eyes of the people who raised them, they were souls, they were souls or spirits that existed before they were born. Which means that they're a complete individual before they're born. And so that's, that's so wild to me. I, I still can't wrap my head around <laughs> But what that means, what that means for them is that as they're being raised, their parents and the leaders of the church, they're not looking at them as a child who's trying to grow up, try, tr- trying to like discover themselves or learn who they're going to be. It's more like they're just waiting for that spirit's body to get big enough that the spirit's like fully formed or like i don't even i don't know if this even makes sense but I was gonna say, is that what they say because i don't hear i don't hear that within polygamy but 
This is. They do believe that their spirit was prior. Right. So, so this isn't this isn't doctrine. This is this isn't taught over the pulpit. This, this you're not going to okay. find this in books. This is just me talking through okay. my own experience, through like observing my own life. There's this treatment of people as if they're already a fully formed thing, mm-hmm. even though they're a little child. And because of that, that little child is not nurtured in the way it needs to be nurtured so that it can discover who it's, who it is, you know? Now I've got a great quote and hopefully this doesn't delete you off of here. Uh, I'm going to move this over. Um, only because it describes our, and you'll actually resonate with this if I can find it real quick, but it is a book from the body keeps score. Have you ever heard? I've heard the book, but I have not, I haven't had a chance to read it yet. But I've read, I've read plenty of trauma recovery books. So. Well, yeah, you'll appreciate this if I can find it. But we can keep, oh, hang on, I may have just found it. We can keep talking as we go, but it's so profound. And every time I do a cultural sensitivity training, um, it's this, I, I always say this explains my clients to a T. Um, here it is. It says, when caregivers are emotionally absent, inconsistent, frustrating, violent, intrusive, or neglectful. Children are liable to become intolerably distressed and unlikely to develop a sense that the external environment is able to provide relief. And as I explain that, as the external environment is you and I. The external environment would be law enforcement, DCFS, um, maybe the hospital, nurses and doctors and so forth. And they're not going to trust that you're going to be able to help them in any way. And then it says, thus, uh, children with insecure attachment patterns have trouble relying on others to help them while unable to regulate their emotional states by themselves. As a result, they experience excessive anxiety, anger, and longings to be taken care of. These feelings may become so extreme as to precipitate dissociative states or self-defeating aggression. Spaced out and hyper-aroused children learn to either ignore what they feel or what they perceive. And I cannot tell you how right on um, that is for a majority of our clients. Um, I'm trying to get the thing back on that. I can see your face. Um, especially even the, 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 the sentence that talks about dissociative states. Yeah. When our people come out, they, they, let's say they don't even have abuse. And they come out from that self-sustaining society. Everything was taken care of, all their needs. Um, but again, they don't have those close bonds where they come from. And they come out here. And they sit down with law enforcement or holding out help or whoever. A majority of the time, I can tell when they're completely lost and they have to disassociate to even survive that moment. Yes. In the presence yeah. of somebody that they think is supposed to provide care for them. And they know they're not, they're not going to take care of you. They, they think we're not going to take care of them. Yeah. And so it's super. Dis- I remember one gal that came to me recently and she said, you know, um, she's a minor with a minor child. Um, so you can imagine uh, courts, how they're going to look at this one. And she says to me, I know you can't protect me. We were meeting with the detective. I know you guys can't protect me. And we're like, well, why don't you think we can protect you? And she said, because they came to my house when I was a little girl and I just had a beating. Me and my sister did. And she goes, we had, we had open wounds that they had hand stitched up without any kind of anesthesia. She said, they saw our wounds and we had to tell them what they were like, well, we fell down the stairs or we were fighting with, you know, a, a bar or something and we cut ourselves. And, um, 
she said they had come to do a welfare check because someone had called them and they left and they never came back. And she's like, if you can't protect me with open wounds, how do you think you're going to protect me now? Yeah. Man. And I was like, oh, oh that wor- that's terrible. That's, I mean, it's hard to, uh, it's hard to sit with. You use the word disassociation, dissociation. And this is, you know, earlier I was talking about um, not even realizing that I had emotions until I was in my 30s. And um, there's another word that I learned back then when I was going through therapy called alexithemia. I don't know if you've heard of alexithemia. It's not a diagnosable condition, but it's this idea that you are so unaware of your emotions that you don't know they exist. And it's it's similar to dissociation where you, you know, this kid, this kid who's afraid, this kid who uh, has these longings, this pit in their stomach, these, this anger. It's it's this thing where you're talking about how they look to the external world and they go, oh, the external world can't help me. The external world is difficult. And then what they do is they take all those emotions and they say, that's the external world too. So you don't, they probably don't, like, they're not even aware that these feelings are them. No, I totally agree with you. And it's, and it's so interesting when they start kind of opening up and it it's terrifies them. The second they open up, they want to shut that all back down yeah. because they don't like what's coming up to the surface because they're going to have a lot to deal with before they can even function in life. Yeah. Right. You probably get that as well. <laughs> <laughs> I've been there. I experience it even, even now it's, um, for me, I've been fortunate to have a really supportive wife who left the church with me at the same time, which was amazing. And awesome. we've gone through a lot together and she's been there for me. And so little by little, I've discovered different parts of myself and I've been able to try to integrate it, you know, but I'm still at a point where any, any small amount of discomfort, I just want to escape. Oh gosh. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I grew up with lots of trauma too. And so it's interesting when I get somebody in, I'm like, I know exactly what they're going through. <laughs> yeah. like, she'll get there, but I know exactly where she's at right now. Yeah. And it's a scary place to be. It's a really scary place to be. Yeah, and you mentioned the physical abuse, but beyond that, that I think the beginning of that quote that you shared was not talking about physical abuse. It was talking about emotional absence, neglect, things like this. Just somebody not being there when you have an emotion. Yeah. You know, if the adult in the house or the leaders of the church, for example, you cry because you have an emotion as a child, they look right. at they look at you and they say, Stop crying. Then yeah. then what you're doing to that emotion is you're you're just mislabeling it and you're seeing it as something that's unacceptable. And so you're not, you're not validating them at the end of the day. Yeah. That it's a- feel this and let's work through it right they're not taught to work through their emotions and what's going on that's right so with the with the trauma that comes from physical abuse that's really horrific but Mm -hmm. the trauma that comes from emotional neglect is so much more difficult to identify it is it's funny your staff was just talking about this today and i was saying you know i have noticed through the years with me personally and with everybody that we served over the last 14 years that the ones that come from severe emotional abuse seem to be harder to heal. And maybe you just pinpointed it right at the end of the day. They maybe they don't even understand what they're looking at. They don't understand their own emotions. And yeah. so it's harder to get to that core. Um, 
and, and it's heartbreaking. And then you also have the mixed messages that a lot of them feel in there where, I mean, from the moment, there's two main groups that this will make you sad. I hope I don't make you sad, Josh, but and or your listeners. But when you're in church service and you're a baby and you cry as a baby, they want that baby to shut up. Mm. You're not allowed to cry and have emotions. And so they will hit the baby. They will beat the baby. They will waterboard the baby. They will do whatever they can until that baby quiets down. So they learn from the moment they come out that you are not allowed to feel. Well, guess what happens when you feel? You get hurt in some capacity. Yeah. And that's sad. That's so sad. Yeah. So it's all these layers that we're having to pull off. And, and as you're pulling off those layers, as, you know, as they're adults trying to get to the emotional barriers in their life, it is so slow and it's so methodical and it's so hard to get the depths of their soul because they, they are told not to, not to feel anything at any time yeah. for any reason. So, yeah. Yeah. The absence is the worst, I would say. Yeah. Stop that crying or I'll, I'll give you something to cry about. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I, so, I know that one. Yeah, and you, you know, and you, and you can't necessarily blame. Because I, I, and you may disagree with me. I can't necessarily blame the mother or the father, in the sense that it's a teaching, it's a core belief on why they're doing what they're doing. And these mothers have, you know, a gazillion kids, and often they're raising other people's kids. And how can you even give them any kind of attention? Or allow them to be heard. And then the husbands are on these treadmills where they have multiple wives, a gazillion children, they've got their church duties, and they've got all these things going on. They're just trying to survive. And if one kid goes off the deep end, that's a direct reflection of him. And so he could lose his salvation, he could lose his family, he could lose his community. And so they're they're I remember that this is a cool story, but I won't go into long detail and I don't know how much time we have, but it was a husband and wife and six children that lived with us. And the legal wife was still part of the community. And I remember the day I, um, they were in my own personal home before we started holding out help. So my husband and I took in um, for three years straight, we had polygamous families living in the house. And so um, I remember walking downstairs one day and I just lightly knocked on the basement. The basement was theirs. The upstairs was ours. And I, I just, and they're like, come in. And I opened the door and it was the sweetest thing because he had, he was, he was actually reading the Bible. I thought he had a Book of Mormon first. He's sitting on his chair and all of his kids were all around him. And he gets up and he walks to the door and he says, Tanya, he said, I never knew my children. Mm. I never knew what it could be like to be a father. And he said, thank you for giving me the opportunity to be a father over the father. I know yeah. these kids and I love these kids. Yeah. And I thought, how incredible of this chance that these kids and six young kids, and they were probably 18 months to maybe 11 years old, that they're going to get a different opportunity now because the mother and father were brave enough to leave yeah. and raise their kids in a totally different environment. All he was doing was watching my husband and how my husband interacted with my kids, how my husband interacted with me and how he treated me with respect and would get the doors for me. And me and that man started stepping right up. And <laughs> the wife, my wife's really young. And she's like, this is great. I'm, just, <laughs> I'm not like, yeah. this is how you should be treated. Yes. And then it was funny because they were missing their, the legal wife, the first wife of his, who he was madly in love with. And she actually loved her as well, but kind of more as a mom figure because it was like a 30-year difference between mm. the two. And she's like, 
she guided me through how to be a plural wife. She guided me on how, you know, putting looks in general on how to navigate the community because I was a child when I came on. And so we, they wanted, they desperately wanted her and the other 10 kids back in with the family. And so we, we, um, we did something we shouldn't do, but we put love notes in the bottom of the care basket. Mm. And we had, I had a friend go into Colorado city at the time years ago. And uh, he goes into Colorado city and pulls up in front of the house and knocks on the door to deliver a care package. And of course no one comes and they're taught not to come if there's a vehicle outside of the house, unless they know who's in the vehicle. Right. And so I'm like, okay, can you go park down the next day? I said, this, can you go park down the street and just walk up? And so he walks up and uh, knocks back on the door and, door opens and it's her she answers not the kids and and uh, he said i'm here delivering a care package from i'll say joe and susan i'm making these names up but joe and susan and there's love notes in the bottom of this basket and they want you to know they love you oh wow she just stood there tears just came flooding down and she said i can't leave but please tell them i love them i miss them too and she never did come out but it was um, it was a pretty special time, but he he doesn't know any better. The dad didn't yeah. know any better. Mom doesn't know any better. It's their teachings. He's the moment they were born. Yeah, so. I mean that's a that's a good point. What you just said at the end, and because um, it's really easy to to look at all these people like they're crazy or they're stupid or they're evil, but they just grow up. They just grow up in a bubble, and that yeah. bubble that bubble becomes them. When I do the um, the law enforcement conferences, I always say, look at it this way. You've got maybe hundreds between all the groups of really corrupt leaders, the upper echelon. It's when the power and money control get kind of take over, right? And um, you've got them as corruption. Then you have thousands and thousands and thousands of sincere followers that are just trying to get from this earth into eternity right. with their family in the presence of God. And, and I said to people <laughs> yeah and the people the people controlling that process are those people at the top fighting over power and money which makes it sad yeah which makes it sad you know that one of one of the groups the um i'm actually very excited about the all red group here locally the last two leaders that have been in place like well i'll talk about the last leader who literally had an embezzlement charge i had about probably 15 women come and say that he had molested them when they were little um just a, a bad guy and he got into power, not in a normal way in there, which is next in line, but because the guy who died before him, I guess, left something on his deathbed saying, this is who I want to take over, which is a relative of here, uh-huh. his, and yada, 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 yada. But um, I love that there's a new guy that just recently came in and I was trying, I was, my whole purpose of this last conference was to share with them that the, the specific group the specific polygamous group that they're under finally have a leader that is more open to outsiders. So his children all left the church. Um, probably not all majority. Some are LDS, some are non-denominational Christians, some are nothing. Some are, you know, you got every walk of life and he has purposely gone to their churches. He's purposely spending time with people on the outside. I'm like, you guys have the most amazing opportunity at this point to reach in and and he recently preached from the pulpit for the first time um, that he was going to end sexual molestation in his community. Whoa. So he, he first he acknowledged it over the pulpit. Yes. And then he said and he's going to so end it. With, 
So, yeah, so I, I literally sent, I sent him a text and I said, hey, which I'm the devil. I'm the devil to everybody. And so <laughs> I bet Tanya with holding up help, I said, um, would you be willing to have a dialogue with law enforcement? We'd love to get some trainings in there. We've heard that, you know, you said this and and dead silence for the longest time. And I thought, see how this one goes. And he finally just sends me an email. And I said, um, can I ask who this email is? And he said, this is the person that they need to talk to and we'll be happy to speak with law enforcement. Whoa, so that's awesome. And I can't remember what my point was. There was a point from the previous story, but um, super cool. Anyway, super cool. So we're hoping that will open up, you know, that they will be able to kind of, and I don't want to say navigate, but maybe integrate a little bit more into society and have some more trainings that most are not, you know, privileged to, because I'm talking about sex, right? And I'm talking about healthy boundaries. They don't talk about good touch, bad touch, because a lot of it is bad touch and yeah. they deal with it within their own communities and they brush it under the rug and pretend that it didn't happen. And, and then they come out and they're like, what? That was abuse. That was so normal where it came yes. from. Like, yeah. That's abuse. That's yeah. abuse. Okay. So. Well, this is kind of nice to then, we, we had a lot of unhappy stories, but then to turn it to a couple of like positive things that are happening, yes. you yes. know, the, the story of the story of the wife and the husband and the husband was learning how to become a good husband and how to become a good father just by being around good husbands and good fathers. I think it's, it's beautiful. And then when you, when you talk about this, this leader who's willing to open up a little bit, I can't imagine a world where these closed silos become open without the work of somebody like you and the, a group like holding out help. Because I mean, you, you came along, you're not, you're, you don't even have an LDS background, but you came along and you saw these people that needed help and you said, Hey, I, I'm, I'm going to help them. And I just think that's amazing of you. And yeah, you stuck with it. You stuck with it for so many years. It's awesome. I stuck with it. I'm crazy. I think some days, but I, <laughs> I, I, I love. It's, it's an honor and a privilege to be on the front lines with some of the most broken people in Utah, right? And they're trusting you with their lives. It's a lot of pressure, but it's also such an honor. And I meet some of the most amazing people in the field that I that I have. So I love it. Yeah, I think that's fantastic. And um, when you were talking about that story, also about the husband and wife living with you, and the husband was thanking you for being able to connect with his children for the first time. It made me think about, for example, the other wife who stayed back. And I don't I don't want to speak ill of anybody, but there's there's this idea in the LDS church, I heard it all the time, that sacrifice brings forth the blessings of heaven. Oh gosh, yeah. And people will take that to extremes to say, okay. I'm I'm sacrificing for those blessings. But I yeah. think just to counter that statement, that story that you just shared is a really good example of how it's not sacrifice that brings forth the blessings of heaven. It's courage that brings forth the blessings of heaven. If you're willing to stand up for yourself, if you're willing to take a risk, if you're willing to step outside the bubble that you've always existed in, then you will see that there are opportunities all around and you just have to go find them. Yeah. And I think it's important for your listeners to understand that the, they teach the more the persecution here on earth, the bigger the blessings are in the afterlife. Yeah. And so, I mean, you're going to put up with abuse. You're going to put up with a horrific marriage. You're going to put up with just about anything because this is supposed to be a flicker of time compared to all of eternity. Right. And so again, it's, and it's some of the brightest people that practice this. People are like, they're, they're dumb. They're stupid. I would never do that. No, actually, if you were born and bred in a system like this, you would do exactly the same thing. Yeah. It's just some of the stronger, more um, 
I guess rebellious people, maybe like you and I, Josh, that, <laughs> that <laughs> yeah. push against the fold a little bit and they end up coming out and it's, it's their resilience. They're like, Oh, we were taught. We were, we were bad because we pushed or we asked questions. And I'm like, Oh no, you're one of the resilient ones that can make it like, because you do do that. Right. And so we try to flip it as a positive, right? Like, no, this is why you're going to be able to survive in life <laughs> in mainstream society because mainstream society can be difficult. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean the, col- the collapse of a story, stepping outside of your bubble, that collapse of the story, the, like I called it earlier, I called it the structure of my understanding of reality just collapsed, you know? To do that is very scary, but the more times that you can do that and overcome it and rise to this new challenge, it's like you become this more and more whole person. But inside of a bubble like that, that husband who's watching your husband, when he was inside the bubble, there were no husbands behaving that way. There was no... I mean, human, the way our human brain works, we can't have thoughts. Like we can't invent these things that, that now this, now I'm just butchering this, but we can't come up with these new things without some, some type of input coming into us. And when the input is always this one way, it just seems like that's reality. That's the way. Yeah. And this guy, you know, I learned he's just, he's just a gentle giant is the best way to explain him, but he just was a follower, right? Didn't know what he didn't know. And this is the way everybody did it. And this was the right way. And and then for him to come out and see something completely different. I mean, when we went to the pool, they came to the pool with us. When we went to the park, they went to the park with us. And we went and rode, butt, rode bikes, they rode with us. And uh, went out to lunch and had picnics, they went with us. And um, it was a pretty cool thing to see him come alive and the kids. I can't tell you watching these kids starting to look up to their daddy. And that's, it does, it goes from the word father. They all call him father and mother in polygamous groups. And that their father turned into a daddy and adored them and read to them and spent time with them and played with them. And, and they'd never seen that before. They had never experienced that before. It was always the mom, you know, it's always the mother. So yeah, kind of cool. Yeah, I I'm I'm the kind of person who likes to look back and think, oh, if if things could have just gone this way or things could have just gone that way. But when I really sit and think about it and I think about my own kids and the environment we've created and the opportunity that I have to connect with them, it's it's almost as if I couldn't I couldn't have arrived at this place had I not gone through what I went through. Absolutely. It makes you into who you are today. Yeah. Was there some tough and some bad spots in your life? Maybe, of course. But would you have really appreciated what you have today if you hadn't experienced all that negativity and all that struggle? And and, uh, it's kind of like good and evil, right? Do you really know what good is if you don't have evil in your world? No, you really (laughs) don't. So So, no, I, I appreciate my upbringing. And I think a majority of people that we've helped out would say that made them into who they are today. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, we're getting close to. I think. I think you need to get going. But um, I just want to finish up with just a couple of questions about. Um, you know, what are what are you focused on right now? What what big events or or drives do you have coming up? And what's the goal? And and how can people get involved? How can people help? How can people find you? Those kind of things. Yeah. Thank you for asking. So. Um, we have more people coming out than we've ever had before. Um, 
Don't we can't pinpoint why it is, but it's happening. It's awesome. Uh, we just purchased a new home um, nearby for young adult women to live in while they're getting on their feet. Um, and we definitely are always looking for like we have to provide all the hygiene. We have to provide for you know shampoo, conditioners, laundry, detergent, soaps, all that stuff in the homes. So if anybody wants to partake in that. Um, they can always find us on our website at holdingouthelp.org. We have a Facebook page. We have Instagram. We usually post all of our needs through the social media accounts. Um, and if they want to come and volunteer, like, you know, we have, we have a lady right now, once we get this house full of the women that's going to come to yoga, we have somebody that's going to come teach gardening, uh, sewing. And so there's really nothing that we, we don't need at our agency um, at the end of the day. Um, we have service teams that are working hard on gardening and getting along you know, up to date. We need some dudes that can make a she shed because our girls want an arts and craft and sewing room. Um, there's always a lot of ways to get involved with the agency. So that's probably the big and the main thing that we have going on right now. And then come fall, we'll have our back to school drive. So people want to donate school supplies and stuff and backpacks and that'll be coming up down the road as well. Okay. Yeah. And uh, where can people find you online on social media? Where can they go to, to learn more? Yeah, uh, if they just type in holding out help and help is capitals, H-E-L-P, and it stands for helping, encouraging, and loving polygamists. Mm. They're buzzwords if they, and nobody knows that, but they're buzzwords that if, you know, somebody, a polygamist types something in, it'll pull us to the top. And so they can find us there. And just on those two social media sites, again, holding out help and out Facebook and Instagram. So. Okay, very cool. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time to sit here and talk through this with me. I could talk about this subject with you for literally for hours I, I think given my background and, you get real yeah. usually on a podcast i'm the only one talking it's nice <laughs> i'm like do a podcast with you any day <laughs> yeah I, I i i just enjoy it that way um i would rather have a conversation than throw questions at you and just listen to you answer them but um i appreciate the questions you have for me and i i just appreciate you taking the time so thank you Incredible. so appreciate you josh getting to know you a little bit more and if you ever have any other questions you know where to find me okay awesome thank you Thanks for listening to the Explorer Poet Podcast. I hope you find this and every other episode both interesting and engaging. I know I enjoy making them. My goal is to record high-quality conversations, both in terms of content and production value. But there's still a lot I need to learn. So if you have comments or suggestions about the audio recordings or the conversations themselves, please let me know. You can contact me via email at explorerpoet at gmail.com. For more about the Explorer Poet podcast, please visit explorerpoet.com or follow on Instagram at explorerpoet or on Twitter at explorerpoetpod. Please follow and rate the podcast on your favorite app. And if you really want to be supportive, please share it with a friend. Thanks. Mm-hmm.